Welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host. We're back after a two-month hiatus. Um, I had naively thought back in mid-August that I could, you know, relax and take a sort of vacation and that sort of thing, but it didn't quite work out. The uh, administrative business never let up. Um, In fact, transitioning to a semi-COVID situation in the university proved to be more labor-intensive than the full COVID lockdown of last year. Uh, So a lot of paperwork. At the same time, I was uh, co-authoring a new book with Marion Cruz on the late Roman field armies, Um, and I hope to have the chance to talk to you about that um, in the future. Uh, We started pulling on some threads and realized that the entire institutional history of the late Roman field armies, especially in the East, had to be rewritten. And so we did that. Uh, It's pretty technical work, but very interesting. Anyway, hopefully I'll tell you about that later on. In the meantime, I did continue to record episodes, so we have a very interesting list of speakers coming up uh, in the next few weeks. I'm also trying to reach out to more European colleagues and include them increasingly more into into the podcast. Uh, That sometimes involves some scheduling problems because the time differences and, you know, European things like they commute on trains and other exotic things like that. But overall, some great stuff to look forward to. So let's dive right in. Back in the 20th century, it was fairly common to read that one of the greatest achievements of Byzantine civilization was to spread Christianity to, quote, the Slavs. This was back when we believed that the Byzantines had much of an interest in, you know, missionary work and spreading Christianity and so forth, which we now know they kind of really didn't that much. But the question about Slavic Christianity in particular was wrapped up, um, as you might imagine, in all kinds of modern, you know, nationalist uh, narratives, or just national narratives, that were also wrapped up in the creation of Slavic identity, and Eastern Orthodox Christianity, especially Slavic Christianity. And as many of you know, this narrative has been focused on these two brothers, Constantine and Methodius. Uh, Constantine, who took the monastic name Cyril later on, so he's sometimes known as Constantine Cyril, or Cyril and Methodius. These were some 9th century uh, Byzantine scholars from Thessaloniki who were part of the extended Byzantine court, and were sent to uh, Moravia, and their journeys took them to other places as well, uh, in order to promote the cause of Christianization when uh, neighboring rulers asked Constantinople for some help in converting their realms to Christianity, organizing their church, and also uh, creating a Christian literature in Slavic. Um, So Constantine Cyril was instrumental in creating the early version of what would later become the Slavonic alphabet um, for writing uh, mostly Christian Slavic literature. In modern narratives, these two brothers are, they're lionized, uh, literally canonized, they're saints, Uh, they are talismanic and emblematic figures for um, what we might broadly call sort of Slavic Orthodox identity. They are, their names are used in, put in the, the names of institutions and journals, and all, they're celebrated, and, all, you know, there are statues of them in public squares and so forth. 
Now, as today's episode is going to take a somewhat skeptical look at our sources for their work and the way those sources are used. Let me just first say, uh, for the record, that you know these two brothers, they absolutely were real. They absolutely did most of the things that we think that they did. And if you want to find personalities to symbolize the broad cultural transformation that happened you know, you know, between Moravia and Bulgaria, um, and in a more extended sense, between Rome and Constantinople in the ninth century, uh, they will do nicely. However, in historical analysis, we should do more than be looking for symbols. And so I will note three things in connection with this. First, um, this was a, an experience I still remember. So this was late in my grad school years. I was having a conversation with a friend, Stefano Sifzimiadis, who casually pointed out to me that, you know, they're not really mentioned in Byzantine sources. <laughs> like, like Byzantine sources are apparently not aware of any of the development that uh, is grouped today under the rubric of the conversion of the Slavs, the invention of the Slavonic alphabet and all of that. It, it didn't really interest them that much, and they weren't really aware of who Constantine and Methodius were. The second point is the topic of today's conversation, which is that this entire meta-narrative about you know the creation of Slavonic Christianity and the, the the sort of Christian ratification of Slavic national identities you know that whole thing uh, inflected as it was in the 20th century uh, by the politics of the Cold War it ultimately rests on a couple of sources and these are two lives uh, a life of Constantine and a life of Methodius the first one survives in Slavonic, was very possibly written in Greek originally, but also possibly not in the Byzantine Empire. The second one of Methodius in Latin. And these texts, if you look at them closely, don't quite seem to be about that narrative. Uh, they, they seem to be about other things. And if you take the texts outside of the modern context in which they are often used and you know read and deployed and say okay what is this text trying to tell me what is what are its interests they turn out to be quite different um, not contradictory to the modern story as just different um, and they they seem to have been pressed into service uh, for lack of better sources that sort of trumpet the narrative that um, modern scholars have wanted to find. My guest today is Mirella Ivanova, University of Sheffield in the UK, and she has written two excellent articles uh, looking at these sources and what their politics seem to be in connection um, with the events of their time, and also what other kinds of controversies and agendas were they part of that have kind of fallen by the wayside because of our overriding focus on the creation of Slavonic Christianity and the like. I will note one other aspect of the general problem before we head straight into the discussion, which is that the creation of a, a Christian church and a literature in the sort of Slavonic-speaking lands was the work of very many people, thousands of active participants, in a very complicated political scene. You have a number of states, sort of kings, with competing agendas, and you have 
the Franks and the papacy and Constantinople all involved in separate ways, often competing with each other. And it was really, really messy. Uh, trying to sort out the details of what happened is, is very complicated. And this is another sense in which so the fixation on Cyril and Methodius is very reductive. There were many people involved in this process with different agendas, and it's not clear that the what resulted in the end, which we eventually recognize as like Slavonic Orthodox Christianity, was you know what most of those agents were working toward. Um, different groups had different agendas, and it kind of worked out this way. And uh, Mirella also talks about these aspects um, in her in her studies as well. They don't come up so much in our discussion. Anyway, I've spoken uh, for too long already, so without any further delay, here's my conversation with Mirella Ivanova. Hello, Mirella. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you've been writing some very interesting things about Cyril slash Constantine and Methodius, his brother, and the mission to the Slavs, and the invention of this Cyrillic alphabet. And I have to say, I really like your work. You are explaining some things that were kind of nagging at me every time I read about this tradition in the scholarship and contrasted it to the sources, but I had never quite put my finger on the problem the way you articulate it. So I, I really want to present this uh, to people because it's a major topic. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's pretty huge. If, if you, you can ask some people like, what are the top five things of Byzantine civilization, and they'll say the, the conversion of the Slavs and the invention of the Cyrillic alphabet. So um, let's get a little bit into the sources here and, and see what's going on, because it's a much more sort of interesting, complicated story that's kind of been corralled into these modern narratives. But you know, we'll, we'll get to that. So why don't we start by uh, just give us a bit of the general background of the invention of the Cyrillic alphabet, just so that our audience knows where and when we're situated. Yeah, absolutely. So um, over the course of the ninth century um, begins this kind of long and tedious process of the conversion of the Slavs, um, let's say. And this is going on in a number of different places and it's being sort of directed by um, Byzantium on the one hand um, uh, and by the sort of papacy and East Frankish Empire on the other. And the people that we're talking about are occupying and of the territories of the modern-day Czech and Slovak republics, Hungary, a um, little bit of Austria, and then all of the, the Balkans, um, so in particular kind of Bulgaria, Macedonia, and Serbia, Croatia. Um, and so over the course of the ninth century, political leaders in these regions reach out to um, either Byzantium or Rome um, to begin their processes of official conversion and then sort of the much longer process of Christianization. Um, in about the 860s in particular, there is a real uptick of interest. Um, and almost simultaneously, um, Boris, the ruler of Bulgaria at the time, um, approaches the papacy and the Frankish Empire for missionaries um, in about 863, 864. And at almost the same time, about 861 to 864, um, the ruler of Moravia, who's called Rastislav, and Moravia's uh, in the Monday sort of Czechoslovak Republic region, reaches out to the Byzantine Emperor Michael. Um, so this sort of entangled uh, moment of, of conversion interest um, is what sets the scene for Cyril and Methodius's mission and the invention of the alphabet. 
Right, so tell us a little bit about them um, and, and how this alphabet came into being and how it spread, just very generally. Yeah, well, of course, I mean, the caveat here is that part of my research is about trying to uh, to nuance a little bit the traditional narrative of right. the spread of sure. this alphabet and its invention. But um, but, the, but the conventional story goes that um, Cyril Methodius uh, and Cyril in particular are what we could probably best describe today as kind of Christian diplomats for the Byzantine regime mm. um, in that they, they Cyril in particular, we know, is, is sent out on a number of missions by the emperor, Michael, um, to both the Arab court and then later the Khazar court, which is in uh, in central in Central Asia, on the kind of north of the Caspian Sea, um, and what he does there is a bit peculiar. I mean, he sort of disputes with uh, Muslims and, and and Jewish scholars, and um, it's not clear that he achieves very much in doing this, which is why I don't call him necessarily a missionary, um, mm. but a kind of Christian diplomat, because he's definitely there to make his case. But but oftentimes uh, uh, it's not clear that very many people convert there and then, um, and we certainly know historically that they didn't. Um, so so that's what he's been up to up until the point when he uh, goes back to Constantinople and is sent on his final mission in his kind of life, which is the mission to the Slavs. So that's kind of his background. And the other important part of his background is not so much his professional career as his um, education. Both Cyril and Methodius come from uh, modern-day Thessaloniki um, in in Greece. And um, Cyril in particular seems seems to move to Constantinople at quite an early age to undertake a kind of traditional Byzantine philosophical education. So moving beyond just kind of grammar and rhetoric, he he goes on to study kind of philosophy proper, uh, supposedly with uh, the um, quite eminent Byzantine intellectual uh, figure, Photius, who later becomes a controversial um, patriarch, of course. So so Cyril's kind of got the accolades of, of, of the educational elite of Byzantium and then is sent on these kind of quite high profile missions uh, before he goes to the, to the Slavs. Methodius' story is a little bit more um, questionable because his the main source for it, his life, is is a little bit more um, uh, unreliable in my in my opinion, at least. But but he he also seems to spend some time in in Thessaloniki and then eventually seems to essentially become a monk. His involvement, his eventual involvement in the uh, in the mission to the Slavs um, is 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 a matter of dispute. But he but at some point he ends up um, over in Central Europe as well and is appointed bishop. Of Moravia um, and Pannonia by the Pope himself, so so his legitimizing authority ends up being the papacy rather than um, rather right. than the emperor. So the standard narrative is that Cyril, who speaks both Greek and Slavonic, invents a early version of what later became the Cyrillic alphabet, named after him, and that this. Um, eventually caught on more, not in the lands that he was sent to, but in Bulgaria. And so, and spread from there, presumably to the north and so forth. So we have a situation where Slavic languages, some Slavic languages are written in that alphabet and ultimately, and some are not. Um, what's the broad distinction there between Slavic languages that, that use the Cyrillic alphabet and those that don't? And I mean, obviously this has been a, this is a very long development and political choices made along this step, uh, you know, every step of the way, but is there some kind of general pattern to that uh, distribution? Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And it's one of the, it's one of the quite interesting tensions between the medieval sources about Slavonic, which tend to make the case that it's just impossible to talk to write down the Slavonic languages uh, without a Slavonic alphabet, um, and and it's particularly fun to sort of read a defense of these texts 
in Czech, which is written in the Latin alphabet. Um, and so, so there is definitely a, a kind of an, a, something interesting has happened after the invention of the alphabet. And the way that scholars tend to talk about this is that it's it, it's a product of kind of confessional identity. So the alphabets become attached to particular kinds of confessionalizations. So the two groups of Slavs, um, so to say, in the, in the simplest terms of Slavia, Orthodox, which is Orthodox Slavs that held on to the um, Cyrillic alphabet and, and the Catholic Slavia, which are um, the Poles, the sort of uh, Croats and the um, uh, and then the, the Czechs and the, and the Slovaks. And um, there are interesting developments there. I mean, what's happening in Serbia, for example, where they use both the Latin and the Cyrillic alphabet in a, in a largely Orthodox country um, is, is more a development of the kind of ubiquitization of, La- of the Latin script in general. Mm. Um, and, you know, teenagers in Macedonia and Russia can write their languages in the Latin script um, uh, and, and so forth. Um, but uh, but yeah, so that's the kind of, that's the confessional story of the spread of the alphabet. There There is a sort of side story to the spread of the alphabet, which is a much more political one, and that's to do with Russian expansion in Central Asia. I mean, something that somewhere between sort of 600, it's, it's unclear, but somewhere around 600 million people use the Slavonic, the Cyrillic alphabet. And after Russia, the second largest populated country that uses it is Kazakhstan. So, so in terms of figures, a lot of a lot of Cyrillic is is actually now being uh, is is being Aye. used um, is not being used in Europe at all. But again, in Central Asia, there's been movements to kind of abandon it as well for various anti-Slavic political reasons. So, so the alphabet's mm-hmm. doing really different things in different parts of the world, um, uh, and it's kind of it's easy to think of it as a as a solely East European phenomenon, but um, but it's definitely a much more kind of global thing. Okay, so. Looking more broadly, this narrative of the invention of the alphabet, the Cyrillic one in particular, has in, in some corners of the scholarly world, but also in a lot of popular publications, it's presented you know, with cosmic significance. Like this is some kind of huge revolution in history and, um, and it's some kind of rupture or new beginning or anything like that. So what are the modern narratives or interests that have given rise to those kinds of uh, claims? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And, and you're absolutely right. At the heart of every modern nation's investment in the Slavonic alphabet is the belief that its invention was something really remarkable and foundational. And um, the way that these narratives like, actually manifest themselves totally depends on what relationship each country has to what we discussed earlier, this kind of the movement from the alphabet from the Byzantine court to um, to Central Europe and then through the kind of disciples of Cyril Methodius to Bulgaria and eventually to what we now call Russia. Um, so each country in each region has invested in sort of different aspects of that story. And, and in particular, some have invested in, this is where tension comes in, in different sources, readings of those stories. So there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's... Um, plenty of dispute about the exact order of um, travel of Cyril Methodius in Central Europe, whether they go to Pannonia first or whether they go to Rome before they go to Pannonia. And this is this seems incredibly unimportant until um, you're Slovenia and you think you are Pannonia. And it's actually really important <laughs> whether they came to you under Byzantine rule or whether they came to you under papal um, uh, and the papal sort of jurisdiction. And um, so so in short, I mean, the the foundational principle is that Cyril Methodius are the apostles to the Slavs and, and they, and they, in some sense, there's a sense that they, they liberated the Slavs from the yoke of using foreign alphabets. Um, 
But in essence, what's happened is that the Slavonic alphabet has enabled the birth of Slavonic culture, is what people think. And so the Slavonic alphabet is kind of really constitutive of, of the Slavonic peoples having political autonomy and having their, their, mm. a, a, a distinct uh, identity in the world. Um, and you, and you, really, um, you really do see this in the sort of the way that medieval sources talk about this. There's this real sense that the, 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 the development of the alphabet is, is kind of central to the development of those states, of their, of their independence, of their kind of sense of self. Um, and that, I think, yeah, is, is very much still the case, sort of left, right and centre. So that's why it's seen as so kind of generative um, and so kind of groundbreaking. Um, but I mean, but as you say, the reality is actually that it's not that unusual to invent an alphabet. So, so, this, so something very particular has happened here, you know. Yes, um, I think that Slavonic culture and all of its regional variation and diversity would 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 still have survived. Yeah, <laughs> right? probably. Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. And you can simply point to those countries that use the Latin alphabet. They have their perfectly own local cultures that yeah. aren't right. Um, and the the, all, the the same goes with the claim that it was this alphabet that sort of liberated Slavonic culture or enabled modern national identities or all of this. Um, it, it's it's a surprisingly small technical fix that has resulted in some allegedly some astonishing historical uh, consequences downstream. Um, and I, I'm not sure that it, anyway, as, as we'll get into in, in, in a moment, I, it was neither unprecedented nor, nor I think that remarkable a historical transformation. Um, but it is important to recognize that, that there's a lot of modern narrative and even identities and national narratives that have been piled up on top of these events in the ninth century, um, and and in particular on a couple of texts. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely, and 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 the kind of there is there's a real kind of cognitive dissonance that happens when, as a scholar, and in particular, so you know, I was born in in Bulgaria uh, in the in the fifth grade, uh, in, sorry, at the end of the first grade when you learn to write, and um, mm. every Bulgarian child has a picture taken. Um, on the 24th of May, which is the day of the Slavonic alphabet, because uh, you've just become literate, of course. And so, and I have wow. this picture of me at a desk that, you know, they brought the professional photographer in and it's just got a little sign on the on the top of the desk and it says, mother, I am now literate, which is very oh, wow. a very strange invocation. But behind me is a picture of Cyril Methodius. Um, and, and every child in my class, every class in my school, every school in Bulgaria does this. Everybody has that picture. And um, so... So, so when you've grown up to some degree, obviously I moved to the UK when I was still quite young and at the time that was the most normal thing in the world. But then I rediscovered um, the, the alphabet when I was sort of 21, starting to be a graduate uh, student and, and went to an event about it that was led by some Bulgarians. And I just thought, this is very strange, actually. Um, and, and you go back and you read the sources and there is this real con cognitive dissonance between what you find there and what you've come to believe or, or the, the sheer prevalence of this phenomenon in, in Eastern Europe. I mean, um, I could give you a, an endless list of the appear of the sort of unlikely appearances of Cyril Methodius from like the constitution of the Slovak Republic through to like um, passport pages through to mm. like random statues in the middle of nowhere in like Siberia, like everywhere mm. you go, like 
schools are named after them, streets, whatever, like schools in, in Eastern Europe are often named after medieval saints rather than slightly more generic saints, I guess. Um, so so their sort of, their prevalence is quite extraordinary. Um, and then, as you say, you go back to the sources and you're like, we're working with very little here. <laughs> um, and, and, and part of what I was trying to do is to say, okay, well, what if we only said what, what is there? Or what if we what if we found, what if we tried to find what we might be able to say if we, if we kind of unpick those layers of, of assumption upon assumption? Sure. Yeah. And I want to talk about those sources in, a, in detail um, in a moment. But I, I have to share a, a similar story that I have when, about when I learned to write. So the, the funny thing is I, I grew up in Greece, right? Um, but I, I couldn't speak Greek until I went to kindergarten because it was raised by my mother who's American. And, and she put me in this Greek kindergarten and said, look, but he doesn't speak any Greek and there's don't worry about it. He'll catch up. And, and I did. But I learned to write in Greek first. And then this one summer, my mom, you know, we went back to the States to see grandparents and, and all that. I can only write in, in Greek. I was, very, I was very young. I don't remember how young. And, and my mother put me in a, you know, I actually, I think it was the uh, Philadelphia Natural History Museum. They had like some summer thing for kids, you know, basically babysitting, but with some yeah. sort of, you know, pedagogical missions or painted on top. Um, and they, so they said, okay, why don't we all write our names on this little bunny that you hang from your neck? And I could write, I could, I wrote it. I was embarrassed because I knew that they, they would, would know what an Omega is or whatever, but I wrote it in Greek and the, and the kids laughed. I'm like, ah, he doesn't know how to write yet. He doesn't know how to write. <laughs> like, no, I know how to write. It's just a different language. But anyway. Um, okay. So the, the key text, right. The, um, the crown jewel in the narrative is the life of Cyril Constantine, which survives in Slavonic, though um, you believe, I think rightly, that it's based on a Greek original. And so let's talk a little bit about this text. It's, it's a hagiographical text that tells the life of the central figure in the drama. And so I have some, I have reasons to be skeptical of it, I mean, but in a particular way, and I'll explain how later. But why don't um, why don't you tell us first, like how this narrative has been used uh, for the most part in 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 modern retellings, and what you find in the story when you look at it independently of those retellings? Yeah. So, so the general reading of Constantine Cyril is that he was a sort of renegade uh, that went against the norms of Byzantine culture by choosing to invent an alphabet for the Slavs, and that he was therefore sort of very sympathetic to the Slavs um, in a way that led him to almost break with his own kind of political and, and ethnic commitment. Um, and this is part of a more general reading of the Byzantine Empire across kind of scholarship in Slavonic as largely uh, sort of condescending towards all other culture, which, you know, there's some truth in, but, um, but as, 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 you know, deeply kind of uninterested in other cultures and, and deeply kind of condescending um, toward them. So in Constantine Cyril, the scholarship has tended to find um, a kind of unlikely hero um, who has been, who over the course of the Middle Ages, um, grows increasingly more and more stripped of, of his Byzantine identity. Um, 
scholars are not very interested in that. They're much more interested in, in, in what he does, which is invent this alphabet. And so his life is often seen as a kind of defense of that act, and in particular as a defense um, of his sympathies towards the Slavs. Um, my, the thing I found most striking when I read the text is just how little the text is concerned with the invention of the alphabet right. uh, in, in general. I mean, as I, as I said earlier, his te the text is, um, is about his kind of very elite education and the text is overwhelmingly about his professional career as a Christian diplomat. And the real centerpiece of the text, if, we're, if we take the crude view that whatever it is that somebody talks most about is the thing that's most important to them, um, which, which, may, which may not be completely true, but certainly points us in the right direction. Um, the invention of the alphabet and the whole mission to Christianize um, Moravia take up about two pages um, of, uh, of the text, which is, which is roughly 20 pages in, in, A4, in A4 edition. Um, the mission to the, to the Khazars in the Caspian Sea where um, Cyril performs a long disputation with Jewish scholars and with some scholars who know about um, Islam is seven pages long. Mm. So, so my, my reading of this text was that this was a text that was obsessed with Constantine Cyril for sure, and with his intellectual superiority, um, absolutely. Um, but that this was not really a text that cared that much about the Slavic people. Like the text liked that Cyril invented this alphabet, um, and definitely the author of the text is very proud that uh, Cyril did so, and that he did so at the behest of the Emperor Michael, and that he did so with the approval of the papacy. Um, but in general, over 50% of the text is quotes of disputations Cyril has with other people. And Cyril doesn't really dispute with anybody, with any of the Slavs, mm -hmm. who are just happy, that, just delighted that he's there. And the Slavs end up kind of quite marginal and quite caricatured in the story. And so basically my takeaway from this was, you know, if you're looking for a national hero, this is a terrible place to look. <laughs> this man is not, is not a good one. Um, and so there is this kind of, um, so I found this, yeah, this very, very strange, um, distance between the between the character I, I i remember from my childhood um who was the apostle to my people you know um, yeah. and then and then here we are and it looks like just your your average byzantine saint going about his byzantine business <laughs> yes so i particularly like the way that you uh, picked apart the structure of the text and so you found that there's this educational background and it leads to a disputation and this happens three times, or if not a disputation, what you call the religious diplomacy mission or something like this, yeah. right? Um, and so it's it's very structured to be about the trajectory of Constantine's life and not about, say, his experiences in, you know, con either converting the Slavs or Slavs or interacting with them in any way. Like you don't have little episodes where he disputes with or and confounds, you know, local representatives of the pre-Christian religions and things like this, right? Um, and yeah, so my skepticism about this text is, so it's not about, it's not about like, sure, Constantine was real and he did more or less some of these things. It's that the text has been written up afterwards by someone to make him look, I think, way more important than he was. 
And it does so by using specific techniques, narrative techniques that you find in other Byzantine, let's, for lack of a better word, loosely call them biographies. So one of them is to, it's the name dropping. Yeah, and absolutely. Just name dropping. It's yeah. like, you know, that he went to Constantinople and he met all the important people and they all knew him and their names are mentioned and they loved him and they, right? And it's like, it's like you're writing a story about somebody who lived in the 80s, right? And this person, like, yeah, he went to the White House and he was greeted by the president, but he also met with Michael Jackson and was educated by like Noam Chomsky. And it's like yeah. too much for a person who's never mentioned in Byzantine texts. Like, I mean, okay, maybe there's this letter by Focius to him, you know, I mean, one out of I don't know how many hundreds, maybe. And he's not remembered afterwards. And it, and, that juxtaposition may, always makes me feel like, okay, so there's a bit of desperation in this text to slot this guy into all the important events and meeting with all the important people. And the structure is also very formulaic. Um, and there are many um, saints' lives um, in the tradition before it that are precisely this, you know, the, the learned Christian saint who goes out to foreign lands and yep, disputes absolutely. either with the king or with the king's you know yeah. priests or you know whatever and that's very formulaic like they're they're texts that lay out exactly how that should be done and at every step his achievements are exaggerated all the time right like he he frees i don't know 200 byzantine prisoners from the khazars and he prevents them from attacking the empire even though they're at peace i mean it's too much well and 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 most importantly he supposedly gets the Khazar chieftain to promise to convert very soon. Right. Uh, even though we know that at exactly that moment in time, the Byzantine mission to convert the Khazars failed. Yes. And they did, they did not convert. So no, absolutely. I, I think the thing that's quite interesting about Cyril is that, as you say, he, he isn't in any of the, we don't really have him uh, recorded in any Byzantine sources, but he clearly successfully manages to bamboozle his way into the Roman elite. And that's the thing that's quite interesting. And so the other kind of name dropping that you have in the text is much later on, where he is, um, where he sort of arrives at Rome and the Pope welcomes him. And then the Pope gets some of his kind of high dignitaries um, to, uh, to sort of, I think it's to consecrate some Slavonic speaking priests. And the people that are listed that are kind of present at the death of Cyril and at this kind of um, celebration of him, um, they're quite major characters in, in, in it's Anastasius, the, the librarian. Um, and there's also somebody who, um, um, who later becomes a, a, a bishop, um, uh, a, 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 the Pope, sorry, who later becomes a Pope in the, in the 890s. So there's, this, so there's this real sense that in, and, and eventually, and we know that the Cyril gets buried in the cathedral, um, in the Basilica of St. Clement in Rome, um, where his relics are kept uh, for a very long time. And there's, and we do have some 11th century frescoes of him bringing the relics of Pope Clement to Rome, and, and he's got a halo over his head. So, so we know that, that, that in one place, he definitely ended up being remembered a saint, um, mm -hmm. managed to somehow successfully sort of, um, uh, to successfully bamboozle this, this world into thinking that he really is in fact important, or if not him, then his, then his, um, uh, his sort of community, his successors sort of. Uh, persuaded the papacy to that end. Um, and so I think what you say about the kind of 
the boasting uh, of his significance in the in the Byzantine world makes quite a lot of sense if you're if you're his successor uh, at Rome, where you've persuaded everybody that this guy really is the, the yes. real deal, uh, who's come from the East and he's really been people love him there. You know, um, uh, I think that that kind of that definitely um, that definitely checks out with um, with with I think the, the most likely context of this text being written, which is in Greek but in Rome. Yes. Um, you know the uh, the trope of big in Japan. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yes. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, this is a it's a B list Byzantine, you know, intellectual. He's traveled. He's just a religious figure, but he's really big in Rome. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> because uh, for one thing, like he knows Greek, you know, Czech, and he yeah. also knows uh, you know Slavic language. So Czech, and so like super important. And yeah, it's entirely possible that. The text is the product of this sort of circles of his followers, maybe in Rome, that are trying to make him seem very, very important. And oh, yeah, yeah, he there was a Slavic stuff too. <laughs> like that, that's yeah, not and, that, the... and that and that helps as well, right? That's part and parcel of how amazing he is. But the the thing that's definitely true when you compare this text to other other Byzantine kind of hagiographies about really learned men, like. Um, Patriarch Nicephorus, for example, who is um, a classic instance of that because his life is full of kind of logical textbooks and, mm. and, and, and he also has a series of disputes with the Emperor Leo on iconoclasm. And when you look at the content, the intellectual content of that life, it's really sophisticated. <laughs> Whereas when you look at the actual debates that Cyril is having, um, it's quite derivative. Right? The actual content of the text, the text is striving to be something kind of more intellectually sophisticated um, than than it can than it can deliver, I think, and it's and it's sophisticated in its kind of structure, but the actual materials that are that are being um, that are being utilized are, are fairly derivative, I think. Now, Constantine does make a very important statement about the languages that can be used in worship. Uh, this is in the text, and and this is, I think, quite rightly a very important statement, and. It, it occurs in the context of the debates right over which languages are appropriate for use in, in Christian worship. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about that statement and, and its importance? And then we can talk about some of the historical background. Because, by the way, I think he's right, like in what he says. He's right. So who does he say this to? Yeah. So, so this is, yeah, this, this is another kind of reason why this text is perhaps not a good source for the uniqueness and the significance of the invention of Slavonic. Um, and it is that in a disputation with some Venetian uh, priests, so the life is kind of, the life is very pro-papacy, but it's very happy to sacrifice some Latin priests um, yeah. in, in sort of doing so. And so Constantine is having a debate about um, how many holy languages there are towards the end of the text after he's invented the Slavonic alphabet. And the Latins say, well, of course, there's only Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Um, because those were those were the uh, languages inscribed on the on the cross of Christ, which is a kind of strange, um, semi-apocryphal sort of uh, memory. And Constantine says to them, "Well, actually, that's that's not true." And the and the the, the quote in particular from the text is, um, "We know people who have knowledge of books and praise God, and each do it in their own language. And it is known to us that these are." And then he goes on to list. The Armenians, the Persians, the Abkhazians, the Georgians, the Sogdian Goths, the Avars, the Turks, the Hazars, the Arabs, the Egyptians, and many others. So, so in this, like Constantine himself is saying, uh, there's a Slavs that 
special. The Slavs are just like all these other people. Mm. And all I've done is given them what all these other people already have. And I'm not doing something remarkable here. Um, I'm just I'm just doing the thing that everybody that, that loads of people have done before. Um, and that's really important because it, it is a point of conflict in East-West theology, or certainly develops to be one, um, especially by the time of the Reformation. There is this very, very real sense that um, a real caricature of the Latin, of the papacy and, and the Catholic Church, that they are down on vernacular languages. Mm. Um, and they become these bastions of, um, of the idea that mass has got to be in Latin and it's got to be in a kind of holy or a sacred language. Um, it's not really clear how much that's the case in the ninth century papacy. Um, so there is a little bit of caricaturing going on there. Um, but it's definitely the case that when you look at the Eastern Mediterranean, there's no sense that there is such a thing as a, as a finite number of holy languages. Um, and the evidence very much points to the points to the contrary. So the fact that Cyril, well, the fact that the biographer has written this does suggest that they, they, it's a rare moment where the biographer goes, it's not that important. <laughs> it's not that special what Cyril's done. Although my point here is to kind of elevate this person in all ways. Um, it's that the mask sort of slips a bit and, and he goes, well, actually, this is quite a common practice. Yes, and he would have known, I mean, the Byzantines were positioned on the edge of, you know, the whole, you know, Eastern world, which was full of Christians. And, you know, this is sometimes forgotten by historians of Christianity that at this time, probably the majority of Christians in the world are living under Muslim rule um, and yeah. are using like Syriac uh, or Arabic. Uh, or Coptic. Or Coptic. So these are millions and millions of people uh, are using those languages in far greater numbers than are using Latin um, or probably even Greek. And so, you know, we got to keep that in mind. And, and he mentions some even more obscure group, groups. I mean, Sogdians, I'm not even sure what the Sogdians are using at this time. Um, but this is what always struck me as interesting about this claim. And, and the, what to me is the odd way in which it's been repositioned as the beginning of a process, right? It's the beginning of a process that leads to modern, you know, modern national cultures and so forth. Whereas I see it as the end. Like mm -hmm. I see a process of, you know, the, the early Christian world generating scripts for local use uh, already, you know, from the uh, Coptic late third century, Gothic yeah. mid fourth, Armenian mid fifth. Like there's this whole process of these scripts being invented, at least like Coptic and Gothic, I think, and uh, Coptic is basically Greek. <laughs> Um, it's, it's closer to Greek than, than, than the Cyrillic is. Um, but I think Gothic also was based on Greek um, spelling and, uh, you know, uh, orthography and, and on and on and on. And for me, the Cyrillic alphabet is like the last, yeah. it, well, not the last, but among the last in that phase of the, of the chain. And so you know, not 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 belated, certainly, but you know, in its natural yeah. time, you know, it it the same process happens there. Uh, so I, I never thought, wow, well, this is so extraordinary. It's a new beginning for you know history or something. It's just you know one among many that had come before. Yeah, I I, I think that there's definitely something there. Like I I remember kind of struggling with this idea as well that 
at one point I, I was I was interested in the Slavonic uh, script as, as the last invented alphabet. I, I moved away mm. from that because there are alphabets that are invented afterwards, of course. Yeah. Um, but um, in general, I think a, an interesting way of looking at the Slavs in the sort of region of the Balkans uh, with respect to the wider processes of the the transformation of the ancient world is to think of is to think of this this region this region of central uh, and southeastern europe and and also of the kievan rus as essentially going through late antiquity a bit late right right and, yes you know uh, yes. Uh, and there's a lot more to learn there's a lot more fruitful comparison to be made between the conversion of the slavs and the conversion of the anglo-saxons than there is to be made mm-hmm. between the conversions of the slavs and the sort of late medieval uh, conversion processes um right. uh, uh, anywhere else and so i think that there is something there's something last minute there's something there's something a little bit late in in that and 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 it does make them the kind of the last inheritors of that process and part of that is for the, the reason that you know the the germanic would have the you know the when the barbarians came and, and sort of um when the ostrogoths and the visigoths and so on came um, and then started essentially uh, undergoing these same processes of sedentarization, Christianization, um, and then um, adopting literacy often with, at the same time as religion. And um, these processes just simply just start a little bit later in the Balkans, which in the seventh century in particular, in the sixth century certainly, and the Balkans seem to be largely unoccupied. And um, so, so there's a kind of uh, there's a little there's a little chronographical gap, but I definitely think it's worth um, putting these together. And um, there is, however, I, do, I, I don't know if you know about Saint Stephen of Perm, who is my personal favourite um, uh, saint, who is a late, he's a sort of 14th, 15th century Rus, uh, well, I guess by this point, early Muscovite saint, um, who tries in the tradition of Cyril Methodius to convert the Permians, who are a people in the kind of Altaic region. And he kind of goes out there and, and a life of his is written and the life is infused with Cyril Methodian imagery. It says, you know, like he was better than Cyril Methodius because he was only one, but they were two and mm. all of this sort of stuff. And he comes up with a language for the Permian people. But over the course of it, the, the text is riddled with like a lot more resistance. Like they set his hair on fire and they like burn down his hut. And the, the people are just much less happy about him being there. So there's much more of a sense that uh, a, a sense of the resistance, which we, which we never get in the Slavonic um, and the earlier lives. And and eventually he is eventually he just gets sent home. But he, he claimed the life claims he got to he got to convert a few people by inventing them an alphabet. And the alphabet. Uh, does survive, but what actually happens to it is over the course of the 16th century, the Russian intelligentsia start using it to write coded messages, mm. and that's the only sort of uh, that that and that's his kind of legacy. And and but but it does make me wonder. The, the reason I like that story is because, you know, how many unwritten stories are there of of, of men who tried to invent an alphabet and it never mm-hmm. got anywhere, you know? And so and I think that so there's always an element of chance when you read the, when you read the Cyril the life of Cyril. Someone's someone's betting that that this is going to come good, um, but uh, and and so and if it comes good, the life maybe survives, and if it doesn't come good, the life kind of disappears. Um, and so so yeah, so to kind of to go back to exceptionality versus unexceptionality, um, I'm sure there's loads of untold stories of, of failed attempts to get alphabets off the ground. Yeah, and there's some inventions that we that just kind of appear. We don't know who was behind them, like Coptic. Um, obviously, this came out of some monasteries in Egypt that were, you know, trying to. And again, the invention of Coptic for a long time was presented as this kind of resistance to Hellenism. 
Yeah, yeah. The, Which, the resistance narratives are really interesting. The sense that alphabet choice is kind of ethnic. Yeah, is, is ethnic boundary keeping. Which, in the case of Coptic, is completely impossible. Um, but for a number of reasons, we don't need to get into it. Um, but the precedence for the life of Constantine would even would be, um, you know, like uh, Mestrop Mashtot in the Armenian yeah. tradition and uh, yeah. uh, Ufilas in the Gothic tradition, whom we don't know much about because uh, he was an Aryan, like just simply because of confessional politics. Yeah. And otherwise there would have been. A, and he was uh, operating in exactly the same re- geographical region. Right. That yeah. whole kind of Pannonia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pannonian area. world. Um, you know, going to Constantinople for conferences and, and all that. Anyway, so so if the life of uh, Constantine is not the place where we get like the narrative, like this is the apostle to the Slavs, this is what his life was about, this is the main contribution. How, so how does that story come into being? And what are the politics behind that? Did it, it came about pretty soon, right? Yeah, so it really begins to come about like i think probably the the closest to the modern story that we have in the in the slavonic sources appears by the end of the 10th century by 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 the sort of within within 100 years of cyril's death and and the first instantiation of that definitely and in particular this idea that cyril and methodius are brothers who are totally devoted to their one mission and their mission has always been and only been the conversion of the slavs we get that already in the life of methodius and um, which is a really interesting text. So the life of Methodius is written sometime after 885, roughly, um, which is about 16 years after the death of Cyril. So in between uh, sort of 869 and 885, um, the life of Cyril must have been written whilst Methodius was still alive. Um, And then we have the life of Methodius, which clearly draws on the life of Cyril, but completely reinterprets it. Um, And I think in some ways, like of all the stuff that I, that, that I've, that I've done working on this, like this is probably the most um, disruptive thing that I say, or, or probably like the most um, uh, kind of innovative thing that I say, which is that actually, if you read the, the life of Methodius very closely, it's not what everybody has always said it was, which is a continuation of the life of Cyril mm. or a kind of celebration of Cyril, and um, uh, and and that it's very much like ideologically in the spirit of the life of Cyril, and it just confirms this co- coherent story of the of the commitment of Cyril Methodius to the Slavs. But it's actually a real radical departure from, from what we have in the life of Cyril, from its values and from its kind of um, um, kind of ideological commitments and from what it thinks sanctity is and what it thinks the alphabet is about. Um, and what we what we have in the life of Methodius is instead this kind of um, incredibly abbreviated account um, of, of Cyril Methodius's lives in which Methodius is just really aggressively inserted into uh, events from the life of Cyril that in the life of Cyril, he simply is not present for, mm. um, including the invention of the alphabet, where we have no sense that he is on that mission until Cyril dies at the end of his life and he appears after his death to kind of take his body home. Um, there's this kind of very, very clear choice to insert Methodius in all of these moments. Um, but at the same time as doing that, and so and so, yeah. So what we get from the life of Methodius is is essentially the story that I've heard as a kid, which is Cyril and Methodius were apostles to the Slavs. They were two brothers that, from their birth, had one mission, and that was to enlighten the Slavs. And um, but the thing that's funny about the life of Methodius, and the reason why it also doesn't work as the ultimate source of kind of the modern the modern narrative, 
is that the life of Methodius is is obsessed with the papacy. It's not a Greek text at all. It's, it, it's I would say, barely an Orthodox text. Um, it's interested in it's interested in appeasing uh, the, the papacy to continue to kind of support the mission um, of, of Methodius, and its its rhetoric is is kind of it's not papal supremacy just yet, but it's very much papal primacy. Um, the emperor, the patriarch, they seem very far away. No one's being name dropped anymore from mm. the Byzantine world. There's no more names. They don't even name the emperor who supposedly like um, Methodius um, goes to visit. So there's a real loss of knowledge. Um, or a real loss of interest, whichever way you want, um, in the Eastern world. This text completely repositions itself um, facing westward, and it becomes kind of obsessed with the local politics of papal-Frankish relations. Um, and so there's there's this kind of sort of sort of rereading of, of what the alphabet is for. Um, and, and in this text, it's the first time that we really have the case made that each nation needs a church, and each church therefore needs a language, um, which is which is a discourse that's much more common in 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 the kind of early papal missions to the Anglo-Saxons, as I mentioned earlier, mm. than than it is in in the East. Although in the East, a lot of churches have languages, a lot of churches also share languages, and there's a and there's no essentialism there. Whereas actually, it seems to be a, a kind of a very Latinized discourse to think that the Anglo-Saxon church needs it's, it's a kind of Anglo-Saxon clergy, and it needs this kind of that its peopledom is kind of defined by that. And yet, the Slavs are treated as a as a nation, as against or a, peop- a people, right? And exactly, yeah, 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 I, and and that's so papal, right? Because it's the papacy that goes, okay, well, I shall be the church that's that that stands above all people. Whereas in Byzantium, you have a kind of uh, a political body, um, in the in the face of the Byzantine Empire that has to accommodate the fact that there's Armenians, that there's whatever, and there's whatever, um. Whereas the papacy has the can can remove itself from from the gens or the ethnos and be like, well, I'm a, an institution that that hovers above them. Um, yeah, yeah. So just for the sake of the audience, uh, uh, to back up and to ponder some of the, the significance of some of all this, and so we've been taking a rather sort of textual critical approach to the texts and even to some of the individuals here. None of this is to detract from the importance either of conversion to Christianity or that it Mm. happened or the invention of the alphabet and all of its consequences and so on. Um, It's just that all of that didn't depend on two people, right? There were a lot of people involved in this process, and we're not even sure that we know the main players necessarily. We have these two texts that identify two individuals and, 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 and promote them for reasons that have to do with the circles in which the authors are working, which doesn't necessarily get us to what was going on on the ground, you know, in Bulgaria or Moravia or wherever. Lots of people were involved in this process. Um, And I think it was a much bigger thing than what we can glimpse through these texts, which are, you know, concerned about the politics of memory of this person or the, you know, papal involvement in Eastern Europe and all of this. That's all very much you know, of that moment, the long course of, you know, the way Christian Slavic culture developed was in the hands of thousands of people locally and, you know, largely out of our sight. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that what you're kind of identifying is a separation between two very different subjects of study that I think in the case of Slavonic have kind of 
accidentally become one. Mm. And that's and that's the mythic origins of writing, which is a history of memory, a history of how we remember moments of invention in history. And if you look at the long durée history of the invention of writing, I mean, back to like Mesopotamia, when supposedly the first ever writing is invented, the story is always that one man against all odds, like mm. it's very Hollywood blockbuster. Yes. And that's and that's how memory works, right? You know, yes, um, yeah. um, that that's what that's what that's what we do as a species to kind of to make events matter. We we reduce them to, to really simple, um, uh, often individual uh, act of, of of invention, or or likewise a foundation, how a people was founded, how a state was founded, Romulus, you know, the one whatever. Um, whereas on the other hand, there's there's what you what you very aptly described as the actual history of adoption of social and culturally embedded technological tools, which has to happen at a slow pace across like thousands of people. I mean, there's, you know, there's who invented the automobile. And then there's the fact that everybody now has a car. And those two things are very different. And and the spread of, 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 of you know, of driving isn't reducible to that one person. You know, yeah. Multiple other actors had to make make certain decisions um, to, to choose this thing. And I think the, the thing that is particularly problematic in collapsing these two as, as the Slavonic alphabet um, scholarship has tended to do, which is to just say, of course, Constantine invented this alphabet and then the Slavs were so happy that it happened that they all adopted it and that the end, um, is that we omit um, the kind of realities of social hierarchy and social history, right? Which is, which is the thing that kind of makes history interesting. I mean, the alphabet sort of lived or died on the basis of whether or not political actors with sufficient power and influence chose to promote it or not. Um, mm. But but approaching it in this kind of mythical way, you know, doesn't really give us the opportunity to say, well, what if some Slavonic speakers resisted the Slavonic alphabet? That's just not possible in in that kind of terminology. Mm. Whereas today, there's plenty of Slavonic speakers that resist the Slavonic alphabet and that that, that choose not to use it. Um, so so if people are, are very, it, they're not betraying their like ethnos by people in Serbia choose to write an official document in Latin and not in Cyrillic. That's sort of that seems fine. That that doesn't seem like it's a national betrayal. Whereas uh, that there's no, we don't recognise there that having happened in the in the past. Um, so there's a yeah there's a kind of glaring hole there of what that process was actually like. Yeah. Do you see in the way that the legend of Constantine and Methodius evolved, um, and and the, especially the way it kind of reached the 20th century, that it has these kinds of aspects of a I don't know what to call it, but like a like a white savior kind of narrative. In other words, that you need the, you, you valorize these two individuals so much, but they're not like from your culture. They're from this other culture, and yeah. they and it's like you need them to step into your history and intervene to do all of these wonderful things that you think define yourself today. And so then now you're stuck in this place where you now you have to start, if you can, sort of you know, hiding or downsizing their foreignness to try to make them more yeah. of your own, right? And it's like, well, yeah, but you can get out of that narrative altogether by by reducing their importance um, yeah. and, and by stressing the decisions that had to be made locally over the course of, you know, long time. Anyway, I, I just think it's uh, these kinds of narratives of people stepping into other cultures. Oh, here's some civilization for you. Yeah. I think that that's really interesting, but I also think that what you've identified there is 
is a problem that's kind of at the heart of every of the account of every historical moment of group formation because the fact is that any any actor that brings a thing into being cannot have already been that thing and right. so there's always that, that those actors are always liminal like if you read for example the story of the invention of writing in Japan the way that writing begin, begins in Japan is through Chinese traders so there's always like right. but, but, but but very likewise if you if you read the the beginning of say the Bulgars in Central Asia like their their first ruler he seems to have been in himself like of hernic origin so there's always um in 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 any kind of genesis moment there's the discomfort of the pre-genesis time exactly um, yeah and so i think that it's kind of inescapable really that there is there will always be that tension whatever whatever it is that um yes uh, that, that, that formulated that genesis you know it works exactly in the greek case you know with cadmus who was a phoenician that's right a phoenician. phoenician letters yes and exactly. then there's all this i mean for the most part the greeks didn't yeah it was like, okay we stole we stole them fair and square um but uh <laughs> but there is in some cases there's some anxiety and like i said when you get to the modern narratives 20th century there's a lot of anxiety about this and yeah. you have you know national scholars who are like adamantly denying that greek was ever based on like you know, Semitic languages. Ew, that's not going to yeah. happen, right? And so you have denial of like Indo-European theory and the history of scripts and all of this stuff because of precisely this liminal, you don't want that foreign figure to be so central to your own narrative. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's exactly, I mean, there's a, an amazing conspiratorial book I found in a secondhand bookshop in Bulgaria and the, the title of which is Why Cyril and Methodius Were Really Bulgarian. And um, yeah. <laughs> And it's like, well, actually, they literally never went to the lands of Bulgaria in their whole lives. They were born in Thessaloniki, they went to Constantinople, they went to Pannonia, they went to Rome. There like, you go. Where? <laughs> um, but of course, but as you say, it's uh, it, it, it's it's this kind of, you know, the 19th century nationalist kind of narratives are much neater than the medieval equivalents because the the thing mm -hmm. that actually happens with the with the Cyril yeah. Methodius texts is, you know, one text says. Cyril, he's a Byzantine intellectual. There's some Slavs. It's not important. He's really important, though. The other text says, there's Methodius and, oh, my God, the papacy, like, you would love this. And then both of these texts just continue to circulate. Like, no one wins out. We don't know which was right. the most persuasive. Um, they both they both just go on. These two completely alternative visions of what the alphabet meant are just reproduced and reproduced and reproduced in, in various, like, liturgical manuscripts. That doesn't work. That doesn't cut it in the, in the, in the nation state of homogeneity. Which narrative is the narrative? Which is the right one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 so suddenly these things start being kind of uh, uh, washed away or simplified, and the Phoenicians are removed from the picture. And, yeah. <laughs> and actually, it turns out that Cadmus was Greek all along. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, I think that's a great place to bring this to a close, and especially especially with modern conspiracy theories. As you know, once we hang up here, we're going to go off and deal with a whole bunch of conspiracy theories that we're drowning in. <laughs> uh, so, Mirella, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I had a lot of fun with this. Thanks for having me. This was and, great. And good luck. Uh, you know, I, I, you're going to work this up into a book, right? It's going to be a longer project. So I look forward to reading that too when, when it's ready. Thanks very much, Anthony. All right, bye.